critical things that helped me doing uh, the work there was the capacity of establishing rela personal relationship with these people. And with personal relationship, I don't mean that we became the best friends. With some, we did become friends. But uh, it was a way of making them understand that I... First of all, I did not have an agenda, a personal agenda. There was a kind of transparency in what I was doing. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked to Aliza Cohn about the journey to found and grow your own business. Today, we're going to a completely different universe. Our guest, Gabriela Arcadu, spent over 20 years doing international development work. Specifically, she works with leaders and institutions of countries who have gone through war or civil unrest, and she helps them transition to peace. As a result, she has been in the field and deeply involved in many of the significant international crises that we have seen in the past 30 years. She spent time in various African countries, in Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Indonesia, among others. Over time, she specialized in mediation and in training leaders at all levels, ranging from functionaries to members of parliament to the members of the Crisis Task Force of the Arab League. In our fascinating conversation, she shares some of her experiences in the field, and she talks about how these experiences informed her approach to leadership. Not surprisingly, some of the fundamental principles she shares apply to any situation, whether it is a guerrilla camp in Angola or your first day at work at a new company. Enjoy this episode. It's a good one. I'm here with Gabriela, and it is a little strange to speak English with Gabriela, but we are talking for an international audience. And for full disclosure, Gabriela and I have known each other since we're 12, and I consider her one of my closest friends. That said, Gabriela has had a really interesting and fascinating career. And so, first of all, ciao, Gabriela. Ciao, Dino. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you for asking. And it's, it is strange to talk to you in English. Let's start. Give our listeners a background. What you do when I tell people that I know what you do, I tell them that generally you're specialized in helping countries transition from a time of internal civil unrest or war and to peace, and then that you train leaders from these countries on how to build democracies. I hope this is a fair description. And why don't you tell us a little bit of you know what you do and how you got to do this? Okay, let's start to what I do now. Uh, the training part is uh, correct. Uh, regarding democracy is only a small portion of uh, what I've been doing and what I do. I do my focus. I, first of all, I'm a political scientist. And uh, my focus, uh, academically speaking, is post-war rehabilitation and reconstruction. Uh, what I do now, I do training in a wide variety of subjects. Uh, Precisely, is uh, I do training on leadership, mediation, negotiation, and this kind of uh, subject matter. I do a lot of capacity building, means transferring competence in even some planning and management competence for institutional organizations that are in countries that are emerging from civil war or civil unrest. Now, how I got here is a bit of a longer story because everything started when I was studying at university in Italy. 
And uh, while I was taking my exam on international law and international organization, I discovered that uh, organizations that were called NGOs, non-governmental organization, existed. And they did something that sounded uh, extremely fascinating to a young uh, and enthusiastic uh, woman. To tell the truth, uh, my main drive of getting involved in this type of uh, organization and international work was less idealistic and more a desire of sheer adventure. I was the type of person who was curious. I wanted to run and get uh, to travel, and I wanted to travel for something more meaningful than going and visiting country and laying on a beach. Finally, an NGO in Roma hired me, and at the beginning, I was doing photocopies. And uh, but this type of organization, let's say, the hierarchy line is very short, and so after a few months, they say, "Would you like to go to Africa?" And I say, "Yes, well, that's." Sounds exactly what I wanted to do. And they sent me to Ethiopia. And there I discovered the, my, how candid I was about <laughs> what I was supposed to do and how unprepared I was. I had not the slightest idea. To give a background, we are talking about the mid-90s. Uh, and then big, uh, at, at that time, there were no, uh, let's say, training uh, paths that now exist for people. People uh, were, I mean, I was parachuted in a situation I did not understand. I have not a clue exactly what was asked of me. And it was like being thrown in a pool and say, either you learn how to swim or you drown. And I did learn how to swim. Yeah, no, just to give people an idea. So you got in Ethiopia and what were you working on there at the time? There I was working what I would say the standard development project for women. It was called a Women Promotion Center, and they, the center trained women, Ethiopian women in a disadvantaged situation, economically or socially disadvantaged, to gain some skills and generate some incomes. Basically, my job was, uh, I was trying to say, but a marketing one. I mean, I had to decide what type of product they should uh, produce and find an outlet for selling to generate this income, and, which I had no competence at the time. So I had to put basically all my creativity and uh, my ideas and my connection also with the international community there to set up. But the most difficult part, actually, the work, I solved, the, let's say, the riddle of uh, what to do and how to do it quite fast, I have to say. Not because I'm super smart. Well, I'm not stupid, but I'm not super smart. But because, actually, the technical part of the job is the easiest part. And I don't want to undervalue the, um, the type of competence and skills that are necessary. But what actually was challenging is... Uh, even the little competence I have and the little skills I have to translate it into an environment that had basically completely different uh, semantic uh, background, if you wish. I mean, the meaning of uh, things we take for granted have different meaning in different countries. And this is one of the key lessons I've taken home after these uh, decades of working around. Technical skills have been, I did have the time to make all my technical skills and competence, uh, bring them up to level. But uh, the great challenge always remained that understanding uh, how, what you do, what you say, how you behave, uh, how you want things done are perceived by your counterpart, the people you are there and they are your 
beneficiaries that you're supposed to to improve somehow the life uh, of these people. And this uh, was and still is uh, the biggest challenge. How long were you in Ethiopia for? Well, the interesting thing, the initial contract was three months, uh, and I stayed one year in Ethiopia. It's been a wonderful year. I still go back, and it's still, it's like a first love, you know, the first deployment you have in these countries, you never forget. Right. And so I stay one year, and by basically, the, not all, the, almost directly from Ethiopia, I was sent to Angola. It was a, a country in war. And my professional career shift completely from what was the development uh, type of project things. I basically dive into what goes under the label of humanitarian work. Uh, I mean, uh, all those sort of activ- life-saving activities, uh, basically keeping a civilian population alive while there is a war raging. To give historical context. This was Angola around what years? We are talking about 1994, 1997. I arrived, the civil war was raging, then a peace accord was signed, and uh, then the country entered uh, a, a situation there was no peace, no war. There was no peace, there was a lot of violence, but the Blue Helmets, the United Nations peacekeeping operation, were deployed. We were all involved uh, in the peace support effort. Uh, and then after uh, three years, everything uh, went hammock and the civil war started again. Uh, and it ended in 2002. It finally ended in 2002. Obviously, there's work to be done, but that also there have to be concerns for your own safety. And, you know, what is it like to operate under those conditions? Stating the obvious, it is stressful. Regarding security, it is the security, let's say, environment has changed dramatically since the, the 90s. For me, it was possible for me to negotiate access to, uh, with the um, leadership of the guerrilla movement who was fighting the government forces, being quite sure that once the agreement was reached, I did have access to the population in areas and my security was guaranteed by the very same people who were actually perpetrators of violence. Right now, it's not like that anymore. It's a lot more difficult, let's say, uh, to have a chain of command that works, communication that works. And I am right now, when I'm in certain areas, a lot more a target than I used to be. There's been a a security paradigm shift. It started after, uh, let's say, the late 90s, and then all the things on the war of terror, uh, all the subsequent things uh, deteriorated security on the ground dramatically for international uh, staff. Wow, that is a great perspective on how things have changed for international aid workers. Now, take me back. You are in Angola, and is your second assignment right after Ethiopia. I found myself, I was not younger, but I was still uh, somehow immature when I arrived in Angola. The thing is, you, I did grow up uh, very fast. I was deployed in a, basically what is a military camp between the border, which, close to the border of what at the time was Zaire, now it's a Republic Democratic of Congo, and this military camp was set up and controlled by United Nations military to disarm and demobilize the guerrilla soldiers. We were basically, we were in guerrilla control area. And I basically lived in a tent for nearly eight months training. And this was my first experience of leadership because I had to manage a, a team of 55 people 
all Angolans, all former guerrilla soldiers, uh, train them on how to train the other, uh, all the other soldiers on uh, how to re-enter civilian life once the guns were, when they, uh, the guns uh, have been silenced by the peace accords. And probably that was uh, my leadership schools because <laughs> it was, uh, I had this uh, all men, 55 men with level of instruction that went from elementary. I mean, the real uh, people who had the instruction maybe had uh, eight years of schooling at the backs. And we were speaking a language which I learned on the job, which was Portuguese. I learned Portuguese from them. So my level of Portuguese was never outstanding. I have a Brazilian friend who told me, when my parents come, please speak in English <laughs> because your Portuguese sounds too much like one of street kids. <laughs> So probably was not elegant, but they understood me. And that I understood a few lessons that have accompanied me throughout my personal and professional life. First of all, one is about uh, relationship. And the second is about uh, communication. I had to lead these people who didn't trust me. Of course, they didn't trust me, they did, at least at the beginning. And we had to organize programs uh, that actually targeted over like 30,000 people that were around there. So it was basically a small town between this, the combatants and the family. We're talking about really a small town. And it was necessary and because some of the programs were life-saving. We're talking about uh, even making sure that the water was not contaminating with the technical team, ensuring that food was distributed correctly and all these kind of things. And the critical things that helped me doing uh, the work there was the capacity of establishing rela personal relationship with these people. And with personal relationship, I don't mean that we became the best friends. With some, we did become friends. But uh, it was a way of making them understand that I, well, first of all, I did not have an agenda, a personal agenda, that there was a kind of transparency in what I was doing. And that's, it took a little bit huh, because uh, you need to be consistent in uh, your behavior and in and what you say and what you do. The second things that gained trust for them was my ability to say no and to justify why I say no. I mean, there were things that were not possible, no matter how much I would have loved to kind of shower them and shower all the population with huge amount of goods and everything. They were not the resources. It wouldn't be fair for the rest of the population living in nearby villages. And basically consistency and, uh, you know, doing what you say but it, it goes down to that is, uh, you know, you say one thing and you keep your words and you are consistent in your behavior for what they would. That was what gained uh, the trust. And one thing, uh, it's uh, something that works very well in, uh, in certain parts of Africa, but it works very well in Italy, is parting. I did throw a couple of, uh, you know, kind of warm up big parties, which uh, we paid for, you know, Things to drink and food and everything and music and we dance and we spend the night. It was actually a logistic nightmare. Just to make you an example that it's always, we had a huge piece of meat to roast. And so we dig a hole in the ground, we put the fire on and then we put... Uh, how do you say in English, la rete del letto? The net of the mattress. Exactly, the net of the mattress there as a grill, and then we cook the meat there. It did work because at the end of the day, 
if you want to establish a good relation with people, there is nothing better than, uh, especially in those situations, uh, these people I mean went through hell in their life, uh, throwing a, a party and enjoying time together and sharing story. And I listen to their story, they listen to mine, uh, and they listen to one of my colleagues. Uh, and uh, that was a, a turning point. After that, uh, I wouldn't say everything was easy, but, uh, you know, it's, it, we became a team. Suddenly, you know, they listened to what I say, I listened to what they said, and we were able to establish an effective uh, working routine locally with good outcomes. Then the peace process went, uh, as I said, uh, derailed completely, and I decided to leave the country after two years because I could not take it anymore. I will leave out the violence that we have witnessed uh, because uh, violence was present. Uh, I was myself involved in a couple of episodes that uh, I was happy to came out uninjured and uh, untouched, unscanned. But yes, you do witness um, levels of, of violence, which I do not recommend to anybody to, because uh, there is all say what you you cannot unseen what you have seen. And uh, th there are images uh, that uh, really remain uh, attached uh, to your soul, I would say. They are really scarred to the soul. And there are a limited amount of scars that each soul can take. And I arrive at the point where I, I felt that I could not uh, take any more uh, and without actually damaging myself. And there are a lot of damaged people that do after this type of work. I mean, you do, uh, you do pay a significant level of personal price. So at this stage, I think it was probably four or five years after your graduation that you spent in Africa. You came back to Italy, but decided in some ways to double down on this specific post-war work. Because I think if I remember correctly, you've been in Kosovo, you've been in Afghanistan, you've been in Baghdad during the war. So what did you find out about yourself that made you decide to keep down this? I did keep the path, but I changed a little bit. I came back and I say, I will not do humanitarian work, frontline work, let's say, the one that exposes you to the worst. Um, but I didn't want to leave um, the area because actually I, I really love the work. I really love being exposed to uh, people that are so different from me that I cannot even start to describe. Getting uh, exposed to people that are so different on all these different levels uh, open up your mind so much that it's something I didn't want to give up. I decided not to continue on humanitarian work and uh, I entered more the field of uh, training and capacity building. It is true that I still went to war-thorn country, but I was not anymore where the, as I say, where the shit was happening. I was more in the capital town, which it can be stressful and uh, absolutely, uh, but you are less exposed to the direct violence than I was when I was working as a humanitarian. Just for a second, for people who are not in the field, what exactly is capacity building? Capacity building is all a set, a set of, of activities that you do, uh, you usually target an institution. Like for Iraq, uh, the, and that's where the democracy came in after the U.S. invasion, they needed to run election. And uh, so they put up an Iraqi Electoral Commission. And the uh, Iraqi Electoral Commission uh, were people uh, that probably have near to zero experience to run 
an election as we mean it in a liberal democracy. And so you need to build the capacity of this institution. And that means you do technical assistance. So either you provide the consultants like for drafting the electoral law, which uh, there are very uh, expert. And at the same time, to run an election, you need, for example, I don't know, thousands and thousands of polling station stuff. You cannot send uh, a Gabriel or anybody to run training uh, 45,000 people uh, to run uh, the polling stations throughout the country. So you create uh, a unit inside this institution and uh, you train this unit to train the other and you try to, uh, you basically roll out a cascade effect. So you train a limited amount of number of people and then this one go around the countries and train to have the personnel to run an election. And uh, then you provide some basic management training and uh, you, try, you, you make an analysis of their needs and you, make, and you, and you say, if you want to run this, these are the things you need in terms of people, uh, skills, capacity, et cetera, et cetera. And then they can they make a, a plan to fill the needs. So this is capacity building. Yeah, and just to share some additional perspective on your experience, you've mentioned Iraq, and then do I remember correctly that you have also helped run the elections in Kosovo? Yes, that's correct. In Kosovo, I've been uh, like four times in different capacity. And uh, yes, I did some election work in Kosovo. The background is Kosovo was, is, was ethnically divided after all the turmoil and the bombing of uh, Serbia by NATO forces, uh, the deployment of NATO, and there were all the Serbs were closed in enclaves uh, and did not have much access, for example, to health services, etc. And there, were, uh, there was a new constitution, an election looming, and this Serb community did not want to participate. So one of my job was uh, I went to all the Serb enclaves, and when I say all, I say all the Serb enclaves in Kosovo, to negotiate with the Serb people not to participate in election. I think they had all the rights to decide not to participate. But to participate in a training I was organizing and saying, in which the content on the constitution and now the election, and say, you might, you are, you have all the right to not participating in the election, but at least you need to know to what you are not participating. <laughs> To tell you the truth, electoral work is not my favorite work uh, of this field. I like a lot more like uh, uh, doing uh, leadership training or doing uh, mediation and mediation and mediation training. It's something that, as I say, binds more with my with what I am and uh, how I and what I feel regarding this situation. There is a, a, a certain level of cynicism and disillusion that uh, after 30 years that rise uh, sometimes. And the only things that keeps it at bay is uh, the contact with the people. And that's why I like training, because when you go down, sometimes you are a bit isolated as a, you know, international community. When you do training, you actually spend your days with people that they give you the sense of what you're doing. And... Uh, if you do sort if if the training is done right you might not have a systemic impact but at least you can have an impact individually 
or in small institutions, and that's uh, sometimes is all you can get. But there is a one thing uh, that, and other things that, uh, and it, it links also to leadership, uh, and it's the sense of limits of what you can and what you cannot do in, individually. And I think as a human race, that a bit of sense of limits will do us a huge amount of good. And I mean, I learned it the hard way, the, um, accept the limits, and the second uh, things that is linked to the limits is even if there are limits and sometimes the constraint can be extremely frustrating uh, to learn to do what you can with what you have. Uh, things do not need to be perfect. Uh, actually, perfection, you know, there is a old say perfection is an enemy of good, but uh, there is always something. So if you and you have a good team uh, and uh, then you can do, even if it's less than you thought before, you can still do a lot. There's a lot here. What were some of the moments on your perspective, you know, this perspective about understanding your limits kind of started to come into focus for you? Was that something you always had or is that something, you know, a lesson learned through hard experiences? It's a lesson that uh, probably it started at the beginning, but um, being able to verbalize it, I mean, to write, putting, you know, the right names to it, it took years and years. There are lessons that I know I've learned 30 years ago that are actually came to light 15 years later. It's not something that, and uh, suddenly it's not like you have an illumination, but some, sometimes if you are a person who are, who do some reflection on what you do, what happens to you, then there are um, things that happen uh, and things you do feel inside you that uh, have a specific meaning, but you cannot exactly pinpoint what. Then if you do a little bit work on yourself, sooner or later, you are able to define, describe, putting words on it, which is uh, a very important step. Because being able to put in words on something means uh, that you have interiorized uh, the lesson and you can apply to other uh, other situations, sometimes completely different situations, you know. Yes, I'm interested actually specifically in that. So you said that the technical aspect is secondary in the success and that a lot of the success is really in how you build the relationship with people. So you have had the opportunity to work in radically different environments with people with very different cultures because you've worked in a lot of different countries and with people at very different levels, sometimes at the top level of a country, sometimes, you know, mid-level bureaucracy, etc. You know, 30 years into this work, when you start a working relationship, no matter what, there are like things that you know you want to do immediately to start building that trust. Okay. First of all, I don't think technical skills is secondary. I think technical skills is not enough and is never enough. The thing is, uh, technical skill you can learn easily. Certain other things are more difficult to learn. <laughs> you can, but uh, it means uh, digging a lot about who you are. You speak about authenticity. To be authentic means to dig a lot in who you really are, and it's sometimes even painful, and it, it's never easy. Regarding uh, what to build trust, how to build it, and how long it takes, uh, it depends on the situation you are, you are working. And this is true if you're working in war-torn country or even if you're entering a new office uh, someplace. Okay. To make you an example extreme, a few years ago, 
about six or seven now. I went with a colleague on the border of Syria, okay, in Turkey, because we wanted to start up a mediation project in Syria during uh, for Syrian, especially for Syrian medical and health personnel. And we start, uh, which is always wise, uh, to start interviewing people. We could not enter uh, Syria for obvious reasons, but there were millions of refugees in Turkey, so it was not difficult. And we start interviewing people. And the level of polarization that was there, because of the level of violence, uh, Syria has been uh, maybe... You know, the, I thought I saw and listened to the worst, then I arrived, there is no limit to the worst. And then we arrived to, to Syria and the things uh, they were told to me and uh, during our interviews were of so extreme that uh, I have to say, it's so extreme and so widespread that I have to say was uh, almost unprecedented in my personal experience. Over there, you could not, it's not, Trust was a coin you could not spend unless you started a long work of physical real presence. I mean, going there several times, getting to know, etc., etc. Now, the project did not happen, but there it would have been necessary months of work of going. Because if you want to start, like, first they had to trust you, and then they had to trust the process that you aim to a role to reach some form of dialogue between um, opposing factions. Now, the, in other situation, uh, it was a lot easier. I mean, it's a matter of uh, your personal credibility, professional, and uh, also your those undervalue ability of connecting humanly with people. You go in a place and you connect, and uh, you connect personally. And it does make a difference that people face someone who, first of all, have studied the situation. I mean, they are not completely, you know, parachuted there as I was initially. I do a lot of desk work before entering a situation. You have to learn a language, almost a different language every time. And secondly, is that I'm sincerely interested. And the people I work with are sincerely interested in, the, in what they the people have to say and what they they would like to do in what are their plans and we are sincerely and they perceive people perceive if you are sincere in your effort all of us in our uh, personal experience in whatever country have, we meet people that they speak but the gut feeling we get the reaction the skin reaction we get to these people is completely disconnected from the words and i tend to trust my skin reaction because uh, my reaction are fine-tuned by years of experience. You do feel when, you know, when someone sounds hollow and uh, something does not add up. And when you have this feeling, you want to dig a little bit digger, deeper. And also the other, and the people that are in front of you do feel these kind of things. And they go and they end uh, people, and that now with the internet, people search you up. Before, when uh, you, you know, you are having a meeting of you, they Google you, they go to your LinkedIn profile, they search you up, they see if there is a red line that create consistency with what you wrote in the email and, uh, you know, your background, your professional experience, et cetera, et cetera. So it's uh, a matter of threading very carefully, being extremely respectful, and having a good antennas on when it's time to 
take a step back. You know, if, if I were to summarize what you just said is basically be genuinely interested in the outcome for the party on the other side. Take the time to prep and so that you are not putting all the burden of the connection on the party on the other side. And then be consistent. You know, this sort of three lessons apply, as you have rightly said, whether you are walking into a war ravaged zone or whether you're starting on your first day as either, you know, as a leader or a mid-level leader in an organization. This type of lesson is the type of approach we use uh, when we are in a training room. It's the very same. If you want to be effective in training, especially if you want to be effective in what we call transformational training, that we want to go a little bit deeper in or kind of start a level of change that got beyond specific knowledge that we do. That's exactly the things that we focus on, you know, respect, create an environment that is safe, that people feel safe to take risk into, suspend judgment, and then the people will take the necessary risk to start up a learning process that then they can Uh, continue by themselves. A lot of the experience we develop in the field, then we try to translate into the training room when we do this, especially when we do leadership training. That's actually where I wanted to get at. I know that now you have, you're starting a new, or you just, are you finishing the first round of a new leadership development training that blends some of your experiences in the field with other elements that may not be you know, people may not be thinking about going together with that. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that and how you do, and sort of how you came to this new calling? Well, it's not a new calling. Uh, first of all, I'm not by myself. We, when, uh, when I left the university, because after I've been around, I started working with a university in Italy. We founded a small association with a colleague of mine. And this association has these two souls. We, can, we are very two, two very different persons. Uh, there's me with a bulk of international experience and uh, basically agnostic, uh, verged into atheism according to the moments of my life. And on the other side, there is my colleague Barbara that uh, has always have a very deep faith uh, and always had uh, a, a path of personal growth based on meditation and uh, this uh, awareness practice. And with, it has been years uh, that we have been talking about starting up like this. We did together leadership training, like, for example, for the member of parliament in Kenya, and then we did leadership trainings uh, around. And we were years that we wanted to bring this type of experience in Italy. And so we basically merged our two souls and we started this uh, master course, a training course on uh, call it leadership and spirituality. It is a secular meaning of, of the word spirituality. So there is not any religious component. But the leadership approach we are trying uh, and uh, we are going to finish the first edition uh, the last weekend of July this year, is that uh, to be an effective leader, first of all, you have to be able to lead yourself. If you are able to lead yourself, you are able to lead others. And maybe if you are extremely aware, also bring some positive impact in a larger environment around you. 
So the courses uh, basically goes, uh, it's uh, in and out. It suggests technique to people to increase their awareness, to get in touch with the authenticity, that, uh, to use the, um, the semantic you use in your uh, podcast, but which is, goes beyond who you are, what are your values, um, and how do you align these values with the external world? How do you bring the things uh, outside? There is one thing that um, we believe firmly. It is true that we are what we, what we do, but it is also very true that we do what we are. I mean, whatever prejudiced cognitive bias that we have, we bring outside in our action, whether it's professional or personal. So the more we understand this, the more we are able, the more we kind of... Uh, accept also our limits, personal limits, the more we are able to act uh, with a good level of awareness uh, in our working environment as leader of our teams, etc. So we try to push a concept of leadership that has three levels. One is uh, caring for yourself. It's all this kind of, uh, I found awful, for example, the things that uh, it's, it's thought cool you know, workload that are beyond what is humanly acceptable. And it's cool if you leave the office at 10 o'clock in the night. It's so uncool. It's so bad. <laughs> so care for yourself. Care for your team and for the people around you. And care for something bigger, beyond is what your small association, enterprise, or, or those. You have to align these three things, no? And caring for the three levels. It does caring for the people you work with, your team, the people who work for you. It's the basis. This, I mean, leadership is about people. Bottom line of leadership is about people. Either you are able to establish good relationship, not only with you, but favor an environment where there are good relationship in the team you work for, or everything become easier. You know, if uh, people feel protected in the team and not backstabbed every single minute because someone is uh, overly ambitious and want to get, uh, I know, step over you to get uh, to whatever position they're aiming. And then there needs to be a larger sense to what we do, the larger sense of, uh, you know, leaving something behind. And I think what makes people uh, happy, if you want, is uh, having sense in what they do. I mean, feeling that there is a sense behind a meaning, a meaning behind having the salary at the end of the month, which is important. Eh? We do not survive without the money. We do not pay the bills. But that can, I mean, I think that we are complex beings and we have different levels of needs and the needs of meaning. It's a, it, and each one of us can find a different uh, uh, way I found my meaning when, as I was mentioned before, when you know that I understand that what I do has a, a, a larger impact, no matter how small, but it's larger. It's uh, I leave uh, the the place I've been one tiny bit better than when I came. There is cap two. Sometimes it's just three people that are bringing home something positive because I was there, sometimes it's a larger impact. But that is what gives meaning to me, for example. For other people, it's uh, different. It's um, justice. Some people is, have more higher level of sense, which are beyond uh, my personal framework of beliefs. This is a very good place to 
close this part of the conversation and you know invite our listeners to go and maybe think about whether they're considering sort of their meaning and their care for themselves or teams and something bigger and whether those are aligned. I'm going to shift. Actually, just going to go to the final question. I'm going to ask you the so-called food for the soul or food for the body. If you have a either a, a recipe of food that you like eating or a favorite book, piece of music or something that inspires you. Oh, well, uh, can I go for the food for the body? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, being Italian food. But uh, there is one thing that is, is for me is pasta with tomato sauce. That's my comfort food. That's the first things I eat when I arrive back after I've been abroad for uh, several weeks or maybe a month or so. And that's what represents home for me. It, it centers me. It's food for the body and the soul. That tastes very simple. And possibly if the season is right with fresh tomato and basil, otherwise even canned tomato is okay if it's well cooked. But that's what uh, for me. To the point that sometimes when I stay away abroad and I know I'm not in, in a place where I can find the basic ingredients, like uh, some um, basically the ingredients come in my luggage with me, together with a coffee machine and some good coffee and they bring it's all part of uh, stress management i would say it's a basic advice of stress management but definitely pasta and uh, tomato so it's simple and it's it has all the flavor that uh, italy cuisine can offer i think you know it's interesting that you're saying that because there are moments for me too when you know, living in the U.S. for 30 years, when I really miss my family or my friends, there are moments where I'll just go out, get like a really nice onion, a really nice piece of celery and carrots and fresh tomatoes and make my own tomato sauce and some pasta. And that's like just the simplest, most basic, really good extra virgin olive oil. That's the simplest recipe. And it's really like being home again. Exactly. So it's my welcome home and uh, it, it's home wherever I go. And usually the ingredients you find almost uh, all over. Huh? It's, they are not difficult ingredients to find, thanks God. Yep. So, Gabriela, thank you so much. It's kind of funny because like you and I talk outside of this pretty often, but I don't know when we'll have a chance to get a pasta with tomato together, but I hope it, it's not going to be too long. Uh, yes, hopefully traveling is, is going to become a bit easier. I don't know, actually. But I really hope that... Um, We'll get together with you and, and all the family, possibly. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or a review. Tell a friend, actually tell a bunch of friends. Subscribe and post about it in social media. If you like music, stick around because at the end of the credits, I'm going to play one more song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. If you want to learn more about Gabriela and her work, you can go to her website, forchange.eu, and it is spelled with the number four at the beginning. You can also find Gabriela on LinkedIn. You can find me online at al4ep.com, which is spelled also with the number four. And you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. I am also on all social platforms. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. And on Facebook, look for the show Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. And finally, you can find me on LinkedIn. 
This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Fullcast. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums. Tony Savarino played guitar, and Jesse Williams played bass. Okay, so now time for the song. Talking with Gabriella made me think of another very good friend of ours, Cristina, who has been a fabulous supporter of Susan's music. She is particularly a fan of Susan's country songs, and so I'm going to pick from that portion of the repertoire. This song is called Just Like It Was Texas, and it goes out to Christina. Wide-eyed and restless, you flew into town.